Hey, it's Eric Newcomer uh, here with Dead Cat. Katie's laughing at me. She's here. Tom's here. We have our friend Deepa, a longtime friend from the Wall Street Journal who's been involved in uh, the Facebook files reporting has covered uh, Facebook forever and has been listening to uh, this podcast, I think, with some irritation. And the goal of this podcast, in my mind, is <laughs> to solve the Facebook issue. I mean, I, I sort of I okay. think I want to do it. Um, I thought it was going to be like solve her issue with <laughs> us. This is like a Mark Maron <laughs> podcast. I, was, I, thought it, I thought it was more of a therapy session myself. Are we good? Are we good, Deepa? Are we good? I mean, I think uh, there's been so much Facebook coverage that, yeah. you know, like it's it, it's a fascinating media story also, which is why we've talked about it. And there's a certain like, oh, my God, is the story just going to go on forever when at the same time it feels like nothing's changed? So I want to try and structure this a little because it does feel like a lot. And Deepa, you're the expert here. I guess to help organize it, I think a good starting point would just be like in your mind – if you had to give us two or three of the core like Facebook open threads, like if we have all this reporting, obviously you had a bunch of different topics in the Facebook files. If you're like, oh, the real storylines about Facebook, if you had to yeah. narrow it down just so we can focus around something to start off with, what would you say are like the key open threads? I mean, okay, they're all going to be kind of obvious because this cover, this company has been covered so aggressively and for so many years. But like, I think if I'm thinking about different storylines for Facebook that I find the most interesting and most important one, it's like the consolidation of power by Mark. This is a company that's always had Mark Zuckerberg at its center, right? I mean, like, like shareholder, um, he has all the voting power, he's the chairman, he's the CEO, he's the founders, he has all this cultural cachet inside the company. But lately, like, if you look at all these different external bodies that are supposed to check the company, it, they don't really do much. Like what, the oversight board was likely lied to, right, in the process of its creation. Have they done anything? Have they publicly rebuked Mark? I don't know. No, no right? Uh, the actual board was at one point, it included people who disagreed with Mark and wanted to push back against him, and then they got replaced last year, right? And, and you know, there's nothing that shareholders can really do. If you look at all shareholders not named Mark Zuckerberg, uh, most of them are unhappy with the current governance structure, but it doesn't matter because they're not named Mark Zuckerberg, right? And so I think there's that is a thread I think a lot about. I think about the fact that like so much power is concentrated in this one person. And that's not something you see in government, like necessarily, you don't necessarily... You don't really see that in other companies I've covered where it's like literally one person is making all these calls. Right. And the, the name of this podcast obviously is an right. homage to right. that right. very episode of him uh, consolidating control. Would you relate the rise of Zuck as emperor of Facebook to that moment that has become you know eponymous with our show that he was able to create this dual class structure that allowed him to, even if he was selling off his shares, maintain absolute voting control over things? I mean, was that like the villainous turn in his leadership that brought him to where things are today? I think it's one of the moments, right? Like, I think there's a lot of different uh, periods in time where Mark like collects more and more power. I mean, like think like I personally as a reporter would, I, I think it's worth going back to the early days where this share structure was even decided, right? Like this is like, you know, Sean Parker 
did, like trying to convince Mark that this is that he needed to make sure he retained as much power as possible. Like I want, I think more, I'd love to know a little bit more about those conversations and I'd love to know a little bit more about like, because that to me is the starting moment where he just starts to wield incredible, like he always had technical power. Like he always had the control of the, of the company, but then like what you've seen in the last couple of years is a willingness to exercise that power. So before the 2016 election, you know, Mark was the majority voting shareholder, right? But there was the, you know, Sheryl Sandberg is his partner in crime and, right. And she handled all the government affairs and all the politics. And she, and he, whereas he like really focused on the technology and then that, that's completely changed in the last few years. Right. And each, each one of these is a little sway. And that conversation, the dead cat conversation is one of them. Cause you know, <laughs> he's convinced, I mean, Mark Andreessen is, is so in his corner. He's texting him in the middle of a supposedly independent board meeting about uh, like a, a committee meeting about like the share structure. Right. I mean, like it's, it's, right. it's, it's, incre- it's just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the infrastructure that was put in place to keep at least Mark Zuckerberg specifically um, in, in, enthroned has been set and there's sort of nothing we can do about it. We can dig into all these. And obviously we love the yeah. Mark Zuckerberg control one because it's personality and fun and yeah. like, and it's sort of, you know, value neutral. So reporters can like really wade into that because it's just sort of like, anyway, but I want to go through your sort of big Facebook narrative. So what's, what's number two? So that's one. And then the second is, I mean, one other is just Facebook and the continuing kind of erosion of democratic norms. Right. And like, what is the role? And that one's a little, that one's a little murkier. There's a lot of complex reasons why democratic norms around the world have changed and I mean, and Facebook is a potentially contributing factor in a lot of those cases. I mean, it's, it's like, what do you, I mean, what do we say at this point, right? So much has been written about that, but does the flood of disinformation, misinformation, act, you know, what is the effect that it has on society? What does it have on, on democracy and the way that people, like the facts that they believe in and what they believe is real and how they vote? I mean, I actually think, there's that moment I was in the room for that economy conference in 2016, the notorious one, you know, where you yes, know, me too. Ooh, Hello. I didn't know that. You were in there? I didn't know that. I, I was there. To, oh, I sat next to Stephen Levy. Wow. Uh, and, and you were um, sitting next to royalty. I was. I, was, I felt flattered. Um, and I, you know, I was, I was, you know, you know, so you were there when he was like, yeah, it's pretty crazy to think about. Wait, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. I don't even, this isn't even a... So, right, basically the day after the election, there was a conference and Zuck was scheduled to speak. So, of course, the first question Zuck is asked is, do you think that Facebook played any role in Donald Trump's election, in his victory? And Zuckerberg said, Deepa, what was, do you remember exactly what he said? Well, I remember two of the words. He says, I think it's yes. pretty crazy, pretty crazy yes. to think that Facebook affected the election. Yes. I mean, you know, I don't remember in the room. I, I remember the room being kind of like silent and like there wasn't like some big like <gasps> collective gasp or anything, but like externally on social media, like yes. all, it was like a like a bomb. I mean, it was the day after the election. Everyone was pretty numb uh, for the most part. Yeah, yeah. In the room, nobody had any emotional reaction to anything right. at that right. point. No. I, I remember, too, uh, in terms of picking up pieces of words that he said during that, I think he said that people make their election 
voting decisions based on lived experiences uh, rather than, you know, the information that they consume online. I think was the point he was trying right. to make. It would take him like, it would take him, what, seven years later to acknowledge that Facebook is a lived experience when he renamed his company Meta. We don't actually <laughs> right. experience things at all anymore. Like That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I actually, in some ways, I think there is a, continues to be like a debate about the extent to which Facebook's responsible for for that. A hundred percent. I don't think it's worth saying that he, that was that insane of a statement to make. I mean, like we can laugh about it now because yeah. we can, I don't want to interrupt you, but, but yeah, no, I don't, I don't want to, okay. I, I don't want to posit that as like a completely crazy thing that he said. I think this many years later, it, there's reasonable debate to be had yeah. uh, on, on whether or not that was. Right. And that was the discussion with Alex and we'll, we'll come back to that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the discussion with Alex. Well, and then <laughs> I, um, and then, you know, I think there's also another thread is just Facebook and like, like harms to like mental health, uh, like the way that it sort of, uh, I mean, like the teen health story, which I know we're going to talk about. Um, There's also the problematic use slash tech addiction storyline, right? Like where people are compulsively using Facebook and uh, they, to the point where they don't spend time with their kids. There's a subset of that. There's a subset of those users. That's something that came out of the Facebook files documents. And so there's just a lot of um, how does Facebook personally harm, to get to Tom's point, like how does it personally harm the individual or you? Yeah, you. Yeah. And so I think there's, there's that, there's that, and there's, there's so many other themes, but those are the ones, those are the ones. I'm and some might, some might argue that themes, uh, you know, two and three are related yeah. as well. Yeah, yes. they would. They would. All right. Now we have, I feel like this is helpful. This is a well-organized uh, sort of view <laughs> of Facebook. Yeah. It's almost as deep has been thinking about this for a long <laughs> yeah, time. For like, like, like a long time. I mean, there there is a lot, by the way. There's a lot of right, 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 so right. just like three. Yeah. Can, can I ask you on these on these points as mm-hmm. you are thinking about them and doing your reporting? How mm-hmm. deeply do a lot of your sources at Facebook contemplate these things? There's such a broad range, right? Like there are definitely people who think that this is all bullshit. That okay, yeah, maybe Facebook had a role in Myanmar. Okay, fine. Yeah, maybe you know disinformation is bad, but we don't necessarily know how disinformation um, like affects votes. I mean, okay, January 6th, you know, like there's definitely people who are a little bit in denial and that's like kind of the mental, what they're thinking, their train of thought. And then there's definitely people who it's hard for them to engage in this conversation because they feel like the media is out to get them, right? There's a whole media versus Facebook theme too, which is, I don't think particularly helpful, but it is something that a lot of people think there, you know, there's a feeling of like, oh, well, the media is, I've, I've actually had Facebook people argue to me before that like the media is jealous of, um, of us because we make so much money and we're taking all their influence. And, you know, that's. We get jealous. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a truth to it, but it's very complicated. I don't want to, yeah. I mean, reporters by their very profession believe in like, a reported intentional way of knowing things about the world. They believe in like truth. They believe in like fact checking and they believe that people who do those things and are virtuous in that way should get rewarded in some sense for it. And Facebook loves to reward people. I mean, Ryan Broderick at garbage day was just writing about, you know, these viral, like the cat breastfeeding episode, you know, like social media, whether it's TikTok or Facebook, 
sort of thrive on pumping out things that are like obviously false. And I think any of us as reporters, it can drive us crazy because we believe in like truth and we think it's bad that these platforms just in and of itself feed people stuff that's obviously not true just to make them angry for a second to get engagement. And so is that bias? I, I don't know, but we all that's, share. That's, ne- that's literally never been a motivating factor, anything I've thought about but in we, reporting. We on. share like a worldview about like, you don't agree with that? No, I don't. Like, <laughs> I don't, I don't think that's like something that motivates me to report at all. 100% no. The couple times I've written about Facebook, that was literally not something I thought about. What did I think about? Here's a list of people I need to call. Here's a list of things I need to know. I have X amount of hours to get the information and now I'm going to get it and I'm going to drop it into this file and someone else is going to clean it up and we're going to hit publish. (laughs) That's what I thought. It wasn't very, it wasn't, it wasn't noble. That's easier for like the Mark Zuckerberg sort of style bucket one, but like bucket two and three have a lot of like, what are your, your values play into it? Or Depot. I mean, I mean if, you, if you want them to. I mean, but like Depot, when you – let's yeah. go like drilling specifically on the you're a member of the media and you're only writing critically about us because you're jealous of our ad money or something. Yeah. I mean, and if you've actually had these conversations, because I never have. You see it play out on Twitter, which is the world's worst medium to have a, a meaningful and nuanced conversation with someone. But yeah. As you are engaging with, you know, in a background setting, so you can speak sort of freely with someone, and they and they put to you this like, uh, you know, canard about what the media is. Are you able to have like a reasonable conversation with them about it? And you know, and and maybe your mind is changed slightly by them, and and vice versa. It's a, it's like kind of gets down to the function of news, though. Like if you're, I had a, uh, I went to journalism school, and I had this professor in college who talked about how during the Vietnam War he felt like it was newspapers' responsibility to consistently shove in people's faces the pictures of coffins coming home, you know, like repeatedly show it to them. Like he, I think he used the words force it down their throats and not because they like it. Like, like news is one of these weird industries where it's not just, you don't give people what they want or what they say they want. You give people what the, you know, you as an institution think they need. And if we as an institution think, Hey, you need to, to understand and highlight the, the like harms of technology, then I mean, that's, uh, yeah, I guess that's an editorial choice, but like, you know, that's the purpose of news and to highlight issues so that people can kind of make their choices and understand because they're going to get PR from everywhere, right? There's advertising that like, you know, if you, if you're a, think if you're like a Facebook user, you will get a lot of information about Facebook from the news, but Facebook has all these other routes, right? There's actual Facebook, right? A product that is used by billions of people, lots of, right? I know they pump out whenever Sheryl Sandberg has some live stream, I get some notification and there I am suddenly listening to her directly. <laughs> it's extreme. It's a huge microphone. That's my favorite show yeah. every time. Though. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so that they have their own platform, they have advertising, they have, you know, there's still a lot of places that will like do interviews with them that are kind of softball-y. Like I don't, you know, I don't, it, it's, it, that's not my job. My job isn't to be PR. It's not your job to be like, this is the number one movie in America. You know what I mean? So like, main, mainstream media, we're the, we're the red pill. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. All right. So, so the, the sort of Alex Damo sort of democracy mm. fight, I mean, this fits yeah. into sort of the, the media has an agenda because I think a key framing there for him was this idea that Facebook was guilty in that 
they, you know, let the Russians like buy, you know, get some ads that sort of manipulated people, but that that campaign was much smaller than the effect of the actual hack, which yeah. was sort of laundered through the media and that the media was far more complicit and that the media has an interest in blowing one of those two scandals out of proportion. And that's that's sort of where we are. Do you, do you disagree with, with that argument? It's like two different sets of media though, right? Like, I mean, tech reporters who are, the media is not like a blob and like, like, a, like a blob that sort of moves in unison, right? And it's not even, and we're not like, like we're not uh, organized enough to be right. uh, like a conspiracy. Like we don't have like enough, like I don't know what my colleague who sits next to me is doing. Like any, like maybe like more than half the time, right? More than half the time. And like, not that I have any colleagues who sit next to me anymore, but you know what I mean? Like, You're I talking about your kids right now. Right? <laughs> I also don't know what my kids are doing. So I relate. And so I just think that, you know, I... I, the tech reporters, were focusing on on um, Facebook and sort of the impact of the Russia campaign. And there isn't necessarily a, like, what's the, like, those same reporters weren't involved in a lot of the Hillary Clinton, like, the kind of the leak coverage that Alex is talking about, right? Like, this is, like, where I'm way out of my depth. Like, it, but it's not the same individual reporters. So, who should who should answer that question? I, it's so hard for me to answer it. Well, also the other thing that Alex sort of he the the story if you end the story at the 2016 election, mm. I think his point is very strong. But what he then goes on to say, and he does not link these two points, is that disinformation, misinformation, bad information, democracy eroding information is now spread by everyday Americans. We actually don't need Russia to hack Tom Podesta's email and grab it and give it to reporters. Now everyday Americans are taking care of that, but the tool they're using is still Facebook. And so I under, like I said, if you stop his narrative at 2016, I think it is very strong. But what we don't, he doesn't do is extend the timeline to show yeah. that you no longer need Russians to hack anyone because Americans are taking care of it themselves, but the tool that they need in order to spread that information is Facebook. You know, if I can just say one thing that is probably like just sort of a side point, Alex's broader point about the media introspection and like how reporters need to really think about the editorial choices they made. I don't, it's like, to me, it's separate from Facebook's responsibility, but it's also, I mean, like true. Like I agree, like reporters need to be constantly thinking about it, but when it comes to issues and I, and I don't think we, we as an industry do enough to interrogate ourselves and, and look at our choices, especially our, our editorial choices. Right. A lot of the but, criticism is the masthead level rather than right. the beat reporter level. Yeah. And we're talking to the beat reporter, obviously. Right. But I also kind of think those are separate questions uh, from the impact of technology. And whenever I talk to somebody who's very defensive about technology, they always try to like kind of throw it to this other argument, which is the media. And I'm like, like, this is like, these aren't the same topic. Well, but do they agree with that because the media has made it? I mean, like, you know, this is the argument that tech people will always make is like, you can pull the audience, but the audience is just a reflection of the media that they consume, which we've now agreed is the case one way or the other. Then, yeah. you know, they can definitely say an agenda is responsible for that sentiment. Well, right? I mean, if it, if it is, and I don't know. 
know. If you look at just what, like, just look at consumers themselves, they still use Facebook constantly. Like I've been writing about this company for almost seven years. I use Facebook. I sold my couch recently on Facebook marketplace. That's I use Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I don't it's know. So I mean, good. it's, I'm not anti-Facebook, right? Like these things aren't, this is, it's, it, it, these, it's not it mutually exclusive to use Facebook products but also be critical of the company's harms. It's like, I, I don't know, we all vote. We live in a democracy, but we can still challenge our democratic leaders. The effect of all this reporting on Facebook is that there's like a, there are people who are like, shut Facebook down. Or it does it does feel like, you know, some of, it can feel like it's so relentless because the goal is to get rid of Mark Zuckerberg. Or because it it's like, well, he's responsible. There's been no change. How can you believe Mm-hmm. You know, that the company really means to change when the guy in charge. Yeah. And I, I know you can't say one way or the other whether you think Mark Zuckerberg uh, should be replaced. But I don't know. What can you say about the relationship between the fact that it's one guy and, and sort of the relentlessness? I mean, I think that this uh, – I, I just think he's accrued a lot of power. And I think he's probably more – he appears to be, at least from the outside, right? There's a lot we don't necessarily know, but he appears from the outside to be um, like in as powerful a situation as at any time before, right? Like I don't see him stepping I mean, he down. Li- he, he literally floats above water, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> he's he has god. He's accrued godlike abilities. <laughs> That's a. He was using a hydrofoil. Hydrofoil, New York Times. It was not. It was, it not, was a wind it not a windsurf. It was. It right. was a hydrofoil. Was the <laughs> right. Hydrofoil. Right. One, of, what, one of the worst corrections I've seen in the Times history. <laughs> and so there's there's like a real question of um, okay, so what's been the impact of all this reporting, this really good uh, investigative reporting on Facebook? And I think there's a lot of people. Within one thing that I find really interesting, so you guys remember Cambridge Analytica? Do you remember that that Uh whole that episode? Unfortunately, yes. (laughs) And so Cambridge Analytica was was interesting for a lot of reasons. Like it, I I don't. There's that narrative that you know the data was taken by. uh, Let me see if I can remember it. I haven't thought about this in a long time. Uh, Like Hogan. And then uh, Alexander Kogan, right? That's his name, I think. And then it mm-hmm. was given to Cambridge Analytica. And then Cambridge Analytica supposedly fed that into their, like, kind of their machine learning software, right. whatever. And then were able to target uh, would be Trump voters or like, like voters in general right. to the 2016 election and flip their votes, either got them to vote for Trump or got them. Right. To not vote for Hillary. And I think that feels super hard to prove. Like, I don't It's know. a fake scandal <laughs> written in right. the New York Times that nobody believes anymore that they've never really apologized for. I mean, that, that's... Uh, also the Guardian, Eric. They're sure. the ones who won the award Right. <laughs> and then when they uh, there was a Pulitzer campaign, there was a lot of drama around uh, which side should uh, get credit there. But I do like that the Times is the only publication remembered for writing that story. Well, I mean, I mean it's, that's it's the one I read. I mean, I'm, it's very influential. No, but that, that is a good point. That is a good point. I mean, no, it, no, I agree. Like, why is the Times the only publication remembered for writing that story? Because it wasn't just the Times. First of all, it was the Guardian. It was the Guardian who, first. I believe won awards for it. They right. broke the story. Right. And 
like every other publication matched it. So why is the Times the, the only the, one? The Times was at the forefront. Of well, it. no, first of all, they did have you know an ultra ultra long story. No, we had to we had to team up with the Guardian. Right, that's true. Yeah, exactly. And no, you'll I mean, see that you'll see that Car- her bylines on all of the stories. <laughs> I mean, this is sort of similar. Why is there negative coverage of Facebook? It's like because New York Times is the most powerful, you know, like news outlet, and people hold it in highest. I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not. I'm not saying you shouldn't criticize right. it. I'm just wondering, like, why you only want the Times to apologize. Because I trust the Times 10x to the Guardian, so mm. I I don't care really if the Guardian. Even though Carol Caldwaller is now credited with actually breaking the story, she has a very uh, strong. She's a very opinionated reporter. Anyway, totally different. Yeah. Now we're but, really... but we we also trust the Journal <laughs> equally to the Times. I do trust oh, the Journal. You. Oh, we do. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say that so that part was like kind of hard to prove, but what it absolutely demonstrated was that there was a time when you could just like kind of suck up user data from Facebook, and then the company had absolutely no idea where it went. Right. Right. And they, and and that is a legitimate issue, and I think they right. kind of and then they um and they addressed it, and they you know it was like you know Mark Zuckerberg took five days to sort of sit down and like understand what was going on come up with a bunch of themes and or fixes or whatever and then finally spoke got criticized for waiting that long i mean there's cer- certain things in in hindsight that are um i mean like the, like the five day wait how big of a scandal is it i mean it's it's a little it, in in the like kind of as we go further past it i don't front remember. running was the biggest scan- true scandal in that whole thing that was what running? Remember that Facebook comms front ran the actual. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. like that's that was the real issue because then it made them look guilty, and then everybody was like, "Oh fuck, Facebook!" Because nothing reporters hate more than front running. Like, yeah, yeah. That what's the the five days they took a while to actually like figure it out and come up with a substantive response to the, like the kind of contract because like if I remember, I actually remember this very well because I was in the process of planning my wedding during the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which was which was a beautiful uh, wedding. Thank you. It was also uh, really hard to plan. At a certain point, I just sort of like stepped. I was like, okay, I'm. I can't plan anymore. Well, you did a two religions, multiple days at a retreat. It was yeah, it was nice. Eric was actually there while I was getting ready. (laughs) (laughs) Like I was in the room. I I arrived when the published time. uh, (laughs) And that is your fault. (laughs) And and so anyway, we so we just we um. You know, the actual thing that I think is really important is that is the the leak of data. And so anyway, if you remember, the Facebook response to that was, okay, we're really sorry. We this is what all the things we're doing around privacy. These are all the different steps we're going to take, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, You haven't seen that this time. Right. With the with the documents that um, that were published in the journal and then later by a lot of other outlets, like what the whistleblower got, like you just you haven't seen that level of apology. In fact, what you've seen is defiance. And I think that's a reflection of kind of Mark uh, gaining more power, just feeling more confident in sort of asserting what he thinks is right. And like our understanding is, is, and it's been reported elsewhere, is that a lot of that is being driven through Mark. This sort of saying, I don't want apologies. I want us to be tough. And and they have been tough. I mean, they get into arguments. Like I feel like they're doing well, honestly. Like I I do think they're succeeding. Is it Facebook files like uh, champagne? They're only Facebook files if it's published in the the Wall Street Journal and anywhere else. It's uh, sparkling wa- sparkling wine. 
Yeah, right. This is what we <laughs> called our series. And then, uh, like, I guess when the consortium got it, they were like, we don't want to call it the Facebook Files. Isn't it? I forget which reporter said that. Like, we don't want to call it I that. forget. What did they call it? They called it, like, the Facebook. I think it was Casey, the leftover. <laughs> right, yeah. right. So they wound up being like the Facebook papers. Oh, okay. So like period, you know, so people say Facebook papers, Facebook files. Like, this is evidence here that media does not collude very well. You know, I know. Like the petty, like. Yeah. Uh, so the, you're, you know, the Facebook file story. The uh, t- Tell us about your Instagram story. We've talked about it on the podcast somewhat maybe in ways you disagree with. So no, I don't care. We've always been incredibly uh, uh, positive about all the the journal's Facebook stories. I mean, and a lot of like all credit kind of goes to my colleague Jeff for basically convincing Francis Haugen to come forward and, and provide all these documents. And it's been awesome to work with him. And he actually, it was funny. I, I was on maternity leave earlier this year and he's like, Hey, can I come over? I just want to talk to you about this like project we're working on. And I mean, I had, a uh, three-month-old daughter at the time. And like, listen, three-month-old, you know, Tom knows. It's, they, they're like, they're a lot. And and so he's sitting in, like, he's sitting there. It's like post-vaccine time. So he's like, listen, I really want your help on this project. And I'm like, okay, fine. Yeah, what is it? He's like, we have a bunch of internal documents and they're really revelatory. And I was like, okay, I don't, like, it wasn't processing <laughs> at all. And then my daughter vomited on me and then like all these things happened. And then, you know, he... It, it wasn't was until, that like the moment where things clicked where you're like, wait yeah, a second, like, there's something <laughs> that is putrid and gross that lives inside an organism that when it gets out, <laughs> says something about the world and, and what it means to me. If I had the mental capacity to think like that, maybe, but I had yeah. nothing. I was so fried and I, you know, I just, I didn't really appreciate what he was talking about until like I came back um, like a few weeks later and started going through the documents. And I was like, this is amazing. Like, it was just fascinating, right? And in part because, you know, you asked this question that I didn't really fully answer earlier about like, what's the conversation internally at the company? Like, there are definitely people who are defensive and feel like the media is out to get them. There's also so many people there that are really thoughtful, conscientious, and like trying, like earnest right? There's a lot of earnestness in there where they believe that they can uh, affect change, which, you know, we can debate whether that's ever possible at a company like that, but they believe that they have a duty to do that. And you see that in a lot of these, uh, you see that in a lot of these comments and you see this in what, you know, she captured. And I think that's, that thing that's meaningful, you know, it's not a monolith. It, it too, right? Like the media is not a block. Facebook's not a block either. There's a lot of, right. I mean, there's an argument that, and this is sort of what you're saying that, Part of what the Facebook files are are employees inside the company sort of doing research aligned with the reporters exactly. outside the company. And, I mean, I laugh sometimes when we talk about company <laughs> companies yeah. like you. We talk we talk about Facebook a lot, and you write about Facebook, but like, mm-hmm. who is Facebook? Because sometimes yeah. Facebook is like comms people, right? Like a lot yeah. of times that's sort of the ultimate. Because we sometimes talk about Facebook as being sort of separate from Mark Zuckerberg, even though he's like very in control. And then mm-hmm. there are obviously people who are doing the research that you're sort of writing about positively. And they're yeah. saying that's not Facebook. So it, it can be very confusing yeah. in talking about a company to to say that Facebook's like any one point when it's... Yeah. 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 I mean, like that's... we. That's true. And we should just be a little bit more sophisticated about what we're talking about when we say Facebook, right? Like, is it leadership? Is it 
Zuckerberg, Cheryl, you know, like all these different executives that are at the top of the company? Are you talking about, is this like a message coming from the integrity folks, which is where, you know, a lot of this research is being conducted? Is it, you got to think through the differences of Instagram and, and WhatsApp and, and Facebook, they all have different and discrete cultures. I mean, there's a, it's obviously, I mean, like this is, this is very obvious, I think, but it is not a yeah, it's not a single entity like blob, right? Like the way all companies and the way the media is. It's just, it's a really complex place. And I think one thing I, I've enjoyed about and I've been proud about with our coverage is the fact that I think we've highlighted that because we're talking about these sort of divisions within the company and uh, in, in terms of how to approach certain issues and how the integrity teams that were built and tasked with protecting the company and protecting users are often sidelined, you know? So, you know, has the, like in terms of impact, I'm not sure. I mean, like the company is restricting access to that kind of research now. They are really uh, cutting down on leaks. Someone was telling me that now data scientists are a lot more careful about how they word their conclusions. Like they don't want to, because like they have to think, okay, this is going to be leaked. So how do I say it? Um, And uh I mean, we haven't heard them pulling research, right? Like, it's not like they're disbanding any team that studies addiction or whatever, but we don't know what, what else might be going on. I mean, is, is the central question of the Facebook files, you know, is Facebook just like a tobacco company? Or like, are we going to look at that? I mean, do you think the tobacco company metaphor, because it's like very oriented around what your internal research says. Yeah. And how that can come back to bite you sort of as negative opinion sort of evolves over time. I think it's not, okay, so I don't, I think it's like the uh, similar coverage strategy, right? Like where you, and in part because strategy is almost too fancy of a word. We don't, we didn't know that this data, this this research existed before it was like, like we had all heard of a lot of this research, but like we, nobody had seen it. Right. And so that parallel is, um, unplanned, I guess. Um, but so, yeah, we're looking at what the company's own assessment of itself is. You saw this with like, I forget, like Exxon coverage, I think a few years ago and how their scientists knew that, or like about the company's effect on climate change. And, and, you know, like there's a lot of this, this, this framework uh, and this, uh, this strategy of coverage is, Common in, in a lot of industries. Right. The stories were good because it was about what Facebook what knew yeah. about their own behavior, not just yeah, what's happening. Yeah. And and also what they, you know, like that's one thing with the teen health and mental health stuff. You know, there is an argument out there that this stuff, this research, you know, these five research reports, some of which included surveys of tens of thousands of people, that they weren't conclusive and fine, fair. But then, you know, the company then... It, then you look at what the choices the leadership made. Like, did they then go do the more intense research? Did they then go like partner with any of these academics that have been studying this stuff and try to get their opinion? All right, we're talking we're talking around the Instagram story at this point. Frame that now one we are. and like let's let's get into the meat of that. All right, fine. So that was the story I was involved in, in the initial run. You know, we've done a lot of stories since then, but in the initial run, the Instagram teen health story. So the way that the general conceit of the story is that um, Facebook had internal research that Instagram had uh, kind of undermined the mental health of a subset of teens, right? So you had not all teens, but like a lot of teens. You had um, 
if you were experiencing body image issues, uh, for one in three teens, Instagram made it worse. For if you were uh, experiencing kind of suicidal ideation, if you were if you were in that mindset, for a small percentage of those teens in the UK and in in the US, Instagram made it worse, right? And and so you look at the study, and they're like, there's a there's a sizable percentage of teens that are not just it's not neutral. It's like they're actually harmed by what they see in our on our platform and. Uh, through the actual feed, through and through the explore page, and you know the story then also goes into what leadership actually did about it. You know, and they uh, there was a one particular feature that they decided to launch. It was like um, an opt in feature to remove likes right from your from your um, from your feed, and. Uh, you know, a lot of the researchers said, well, that isn't really going to solve the problem. And Instagram went forward with it anyway, because, and this is also from their internal documents, they thought it would be a PR win. So it raises some questions. Well, about sorry, how, what would be a PR win? Uh, rolling out like a optional feature to remove your like counts. Like, But using removing the likes, sorry, it hurt people? No. So one of, so I'm not being clear. I think one the research of, just said that removing the likes would not do anything. And so why yeah. bother? And Facebook said, well, the reason to bother is because it would be a PR win. And like the idea being that, you know, the hypothesis was like, if you remove likes and you remove that social comparison issue, right. Where you're like comparing yourself against like somebody else in your class. And then if they get more likes, that might make you feel bad. And, and, you know, so maybe one solution was remove the likes, but they found that that doesn't really help uh, if it's, especially if it's optional, right? But Facebook went ahead with it anyway, because they thought it would look good. And so there's, there's, there's a lot of in there about not just like the problem itself, but then the way the company went about like quote unquote solving it. And like the way they just sort of they, they sort of sidestepped the issue and tried to put band-aids on, on some of these, on some of these problems. And I think I, I'm actually, so now I'm curious, like, what did you guys think? Like, that's, a, that's a story that's actually generated a lot of heat. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, like the critics, they all say the, the critics point to the fact that the research wasn't as dire as the headlines might've made it seem and thus say yeah. let's throw out the entire story. And I think that what has been lost for, and you let me know, you let us know why you think this happened. What has been lost uh, in the reading of these stories is this focus on what the company does with information rather than whether or not the information is objectively good or bad, whether it's objectively as harmful as it could be or not. Why fitting into that, I think we've said on, and maybe Katie said, I forget who, who, but does Facebook need to be clearly worse than Vogue for this story to have impact? And I do think... How the headlines framed, it's like, oh, some percentage of women feel bad when they see Instagram or teenage girls, excuse me. You know, is that true of Vogue? And if it's not worse than Vogue, like, why is that the headline? Or, or not even just worse than Vogue, but if the metaphor is going to hold of it being a tobacco company in which there is clear and unarguable medical evidence that smoking dramatically increases your likelihood of getting lung cancer or other kind of negative health effects. That's not the same thing as like a subset of, you know, people. It's all smokers have a higher percentage likelihood of getting cancer. Yeah. Um, and so does that kind of hurt, you think, the 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 strength of the metaphor and, you know, contribute to an idea of overhyping um, the actual findings of this report? Yeah. 
I don't, you know, it's interesting. Um, I just pulled up the story because I wanted to make sure I, I was remembering this right. And like, I've gone back and reread the story because I feel like when it's been quoted back to me, sometimes I don't recognize <laughs> the story yeah. at all. And so the story says, you know, 32% of teen girl, this is actually quoting from the slide, right? 32% of teen girls said that when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse. This has been quoted back to me as one in three teen girls uh, are being destroyed by Instagram. Right. <laughs> and that's not the same thing. And like, right. I don't, you know, I'm like, I, I sort of um, have to step in and sort of, you know, I, I, I do what I can and, you know, I'm like, Oh, well actually that, that had to do with body image issues. And I think we were very responsible and careful in how we framed it. We, we, drew it directly from their slide presentations. What do you think about the accusation that you guys selectively pulled information that proved that point, but slides that actually showed there were beneficial aspects of Instagram and people feeling better? That was something Alex, I think, brought up on it. And I know others have as well. I mean, what's your response to that? I think everything we, I don't, I want to be like a little careful about how I say this because I I want the story to stand for itself. And I think we did a good job of expressing the individual data points, but there is a distinction between what we wrote in our story and then how it gets interpreted by other news outlets, commentators, advocates, activists, like that kind of thing. And so there are people that have taken that stat, the 32% stat, and so, you know, they, they don't couch it or, or, you know, describe it the way it's written in both our story and the slides. Right. I, so it's a little hard for me to, I, I don't know, you guys have been in this situation, I'm sure a number of times, like what happens when someone is saying, Hey, this version of the story that's been circulating is wrong. You're like, well, okay. I, I feel like something that, we've all experienced as reporters yeah. is some subject hates the story and they're like, this is yeah. false. And you're like, well, I've been through it with comms. Every line of it is factually true. Like you guys aren't contesting on anything any individual person, comms or a lawyer would think is false. You know, like, isn't that the definition of what truth and falsity is? That like all the claims are true. And then the subjects and the public are like, well, it reads false to me. And I I do think we sometimes... You know, yeah. for a lot of my career, I would get lost in the journalistic side of it. But I do think there's 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 a valid point that if like people feel like your article is leading them somewhere, right? That given other facts, they wouldn't believe. Then there's like a falsity, even if obviously all the moves are fair. And I, as a reporter, obviously I'm sympathetic. It's terrible to say something's like false when the lot, when it's truly constructed and fair and the journal in particular is very judicious <laughs> in a way that other outlets aren't. I mean, you read back the Theranos story, which we've been talking about, obviously yeah. it really speaks, you know, at the time I'm sure I would have criticized it for pulling its punches. I hated when, when Bloomberg would do this, but there is something to be said for the restraint in positioning stuff. And then which maybe yeah. played into, you know, Francis's reason to, to leak specifically to the journal. I think she's mentioned that, that she thought yeah. that Jeff was a pretty even-handed operator. Um, but I, I want to go back for a second on the Facebook front, because I think what a, a lot of the, why Facebook is such an interesting company on this topic is that there is so much that people personally feel about the company at this point that it almost doesn't matter how nuanced and even-handed your story is, because once certain conclusions that are in there... Um, get interpreted by the people and get mixed in with their preconceived notions about things. It's it's just it's out of our control as the media. And and it really struck me when I was when I was prepping for the episode with Alex, and I went back and I read all the stories about uh, Russia Gate 
that you were bylined on many of. And I found the stories to be very even-handed and and not alarmist and and just sort yeah. of laying out what was in Facebook's report that they were going to be uh, demonstrating to to Congress. And that's the same of the New York Times and the Journal uh, and, and the Guard and all these places. But then we see an article by a very smart uh, per, uh, journalist, uh, columnist, uh, Margaret Sullivan, who completely misinterprets uh, the conclusion of that yeah. report. Who we love. I feel like we've had to criticize her, but most of her work, well, we, 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 sh- we think she's great. I said she's smart. Like, I think she's great. But she misinterpreted the report and said, we need to come to the realization that had Facebook not have allowed, you know, whatever um, Michigas on the part of the, uh, you know, Russians to post like, you know, spend $80,000 promoting fake articles that Donald Trump would not be president, which is not something that Facebook's report ever said. And there's no backing of that. And I think what happened here and what probably happens so often with Facebook is that a well-reasoned and nuanced story um, gets out there and gets you know mixed up in all the personal uh, uh, issues that people have with the government, with Facebook, with Mark Zuckerberg, yeah. with whatever. And and I think it's and I think this is what people don't recognize about the media. When I say people, I mean like tech critics. Is right. that there's only so much that we can do, <laughs> because once the sort of story is out there, it's out of our control. It was always amazing to me. You know, I covered a lot of Uber. I wrote a lot of the negative stories about Uber, and then I come across people that had such such a negative view of Uber that I didn't share. You know what I mean? Like, it it is just amazing with like your, not, I mean, obviously there are other things and people have different sort of moral calculuses, but it is interesting that like people can read your body of work and then come to just a much more like. Yeah, like a a finite and. and, and, I don't know, vehement sort of. Just an a- activist crowd has a different sentiment than like reporters do and read this stuff with such like a lens. I think what Tom said sort of speaks to two things. One, the idea of the media, the problem with the media and the reason I hate the the moniker of the media is that it clumps reporters and columnists into one group when reporters and columnists are almost always working at cross purposes, right? (laughs) Columnists, like I had this debate with a friend of mine who's a, he's a columnist and a thought leader here in Washington, DC. And he has like very little regard for reporting. He thinks it's dumb. He thinks that he's the person who controls the conversation, which is fine because actually I kind of agree with this assessment. But the thing is, is he wouldn't be able to control a conversation if reporters were not mining facts and bringing them to him to converse about. That said, his job is something that hurts. I don't want to say hurts. His job, what it will do is will take attention away from the facts on the ground because he is running it through his worldview machine. So the idea that the media is this monolith that includes both commentary and reporting, I think is horrifying, but there seems to be like no way to change it. Like we can't, like, what do we do to undo this? Well, not in the age of Twitter too. Yeah. Right. It's like, we're all the media. It's like that Gary Steingart book, Super Sad True Love Story. Are you media or are you credit? Like, it's like this horrifying world. Anyway. And then the other thing is, yeah, so you have this like view of the media. And then I think the media's view on Facebook, running it through that machine, one of the reasons why we then start depending on these very lazy comparisons like the tobacco industry comparison is because it's Mm -hmm. like one that everyone in the media seems to be able to be comfortable with because there might be some reporting to bear it out. And it's like easy for op-ed writers to kind of use because it's so visceral when they're writing a column when the tobacco, when those sorts of comparisons 
are like incredibly lazy and make zero sense, like at all. You know, tobacco companies made cigarettes and pushed them to people. Facebook created some technology, but the product is made by Deepa and me and Tom and Eric. And we're the ones pushing toxic shit to one another. So the only way to, you can stop the tobacco industry by shutting down their factories. The only way to stop Facebook is to get all of us off the platform. That's totally different. Um, Well, I don't know about that. Yeah, right. Well, the algorithm, I think, is 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 a complexifier. There. I mean, like the uh, abs- yeah, absolutely, the algorithm has a lot of control. But at the end of the yeah. day, the people creating the right. toxic I, shit. I actually think. I mean, Deepa's reacting to this, but Katie's position is very far from. I think, Deepa, your your position. Well, I guess I, mean, I would the- just say simply that um, it's not. I, I think that might be giving Facebook too much credit. I mean, there is this really uh, fascinating uh, story that was in the original series I wasn't involved in, my colleague Keach wrote. And it was, there's this Eastern European political party that after Facebook changed like its newsfeed algorithm, they complained to the company and said, listen, like before it was like 50-50 negative positive, but ever since you've changed the algorithm, like we can't, we like the positive stuff isn't reaching. So we've now shifted to, I think, 80-20. And like, that's an example of like, that's not coming that's a party responding to the, um, to, you know, whatever the record, whatever the newsfeed algorithm is promoting. Right. You look at these top Facebook content producers. I mean, they're all spammers, right? It's clear that if you want to get engagement on Facebook, I mean, buzz, Buzzfeed's whole insight was like chasing the algorithm, you know, (laughs) like, I mean, obviously. Oh yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I guess what I meant by that was just that by having that kind of lazy comparison, what it does is it, distracts us from any kind of real solution because the comparison yeah. implies a solution that does not apply right. to this industry. Right. Like, I don't think the, the, the comparison is that. The solution yeah. for tobacco was like, we'll oh. just shut down the factories and don't make the cigarettes anymore. So if you're if you're going down that road well, and that's you not try the to solution. apply that the to tech companies- The solution was that we make the tobacco companies try to wean people off their product and there is a similarity. No, the, the solution was actually making the product too expensive. The solution was making the product very, very expensive. That was the solution. It was a market solution. Well, make making it, the product, yeah, make it less addictive, which Facebook could do. There are a lot of things I like. But I like the metaphor. But they don't. They never made tobaccos. They never made tobacco less addictive. Trust me. Well, you met the amount of nicotine <laughs> is regulated. Right. Well, the amount of nicotine was was brought down, but they never made it less addictive. That is a ridiculous thing to say. But the idea that using the metaphor will get you to a solution on social media, I think is just wrong. Yeah. It's wrong. I, and yeah, you know, this story in particular, I think really sparked those comparisons. But I I just think it's an opening. Look, we want to know more, right? Like, I think- Did you guys introduce that metaphor? Is that in the- I do not think we did introduce yeah. that metaphor. Okay. I think it was an enterprising op-ed columnist <laughs> who read yeah. the story. Yeah. If you did, we uh, can take it out. But yeah, you. No, so Blumenthal said it in um, his in a comment to us. Mark Benioff said it before you guys oh, even yes. wrote you guys it. I remember. Oh, that's right. Benioff. Yeah. I, rem- I mean, I don't know if he was the first one, but his was after Trump's election. He because you know there was this period where all yeah. these tech leaders that were not social media companies per se were trying to differentiate themselves from. I mean, Tim Cook most memorably, but Benioff also, yeah. um, which I think underplays the fact that you know Salesforce is tried to buy Twitter. Yeah. What well, also is a, just a super addictive product. I mean, I, just, <laughs> I love I love my Salesforce. I can't get enough of my Salesforce. <laughs> 
But um, but yeah, no, yeah. right. They were going to be in that game. He was going to buy the worst one of them all. They were going to buy like the absolute like pure distilled cesspool of uh, of, of the internet, which is I, I'm going to ask, Twitter. can I ask you an annoying question? I feel like re- reporters, you know, I, I don't know. There's a strong, especially if you work for a big outlet to not want to say like, that the story is fully like airtight, like you wouldn't change anything. Like there, there are a lot of institutional. I do think a failure of media is there's a lot of institutional pressure to say like, stand by every word of the story. We don't change, you know. But is there anything in the Instagram story that you would do differently now? Sort of just watching it all play out, knowing that you probably can't say yes. But I, I mean, I do think it's an issue with the media that we will never say yes to that. I don't, you know, I wish I, I, what I wish had come across more that I can, I can say, look, I wish it had come across that this was based on not just like one or two internal studies, but several, I wish it uh, would have come across more was that, yeah, there was a range of studies. Some of them were small. Some of them though included tens of thousands of people. I wish that it, we somehow like the idea that we, it wasn't our, findings, right? Like we aren't quoting ourselves and we're not put, we're using the researcher's description. So this is what they think it is. I wish that had come right. across. It's sort of a hard response. Facebook's is sort of like, it's our research and it's bad, <laughs> right? That's sort of their defense, right? And it's like, then why, and should you be headlining research that they think is like pretty Weak. But do they think it's weak? And I guess the thing is, is that we're looking at five different studies. And I think it's also that point in this one direction. That's where I, and I, that this is my uh, thing I, that I really wish had come across. It's just like, it, it, like, even if this, even if all these studies are really inconclusive, what's really important is like, well, how does the company respond? How does the company like push, get, decide to, to address these issues. Maybe they do a big, deep study and they find it's, it's a really small number of people, but you remember that even in their public statements afterwards, they're like, you know, even one person who feels that this all started on, on Instagram is too many. Right. So like their, their standard is quite high, right. They're not, you know, it's not. And how they're responding is shutting down all the teams, right? Or just for our reader. Well, they have parental controls, right? I mean, that happened a couple of weeks ago, but that's something they could have done years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So they do controls. They they put pause, they put a pause on Instagram kids, although they haven't committed to completely um, killing it. Right. So they're still thinking of going forward with that. Um, But they're, gonna go slow and um you know adam Asari was in front of congress i mean there's there's been there have been some changes there have been some discussions but you're but you're saying the story the critical part of how they responded just to spell that out the part that we've outlined in our story is when presented with different options they picked an option that didn't necessarily have the biggest mental health impact but did have a pr impact oh, hiding likes right but <laughs> there's a way to frame that as yeah. sort of they're doing with the media in, in Katie's version where it's like this chattering class that's not very informed, not like necessarily what the beat reporters would say they should do, um, want it. <laughs> so, right? I mean, in some ways, like the public and the media chattering class would have thought removing likes was the best idea. And in some ways, the media pushes them to, to what seems intuitively useful rather yeah. than what scientists or researchers or smart people right. think is useful. 
And I mean, that's like all the points I said that just now that I wanted, that I wish had come across more were in the story, but there, and there's a lot of nuance in the story. And there's, a, I was also surprised by the internal research that showed that removing likes had no real, yeah. wasn't really going to make an impact. That yes. was counterintuitive to me. Yeah, but, totally. But I mean, that's the conclusion. And, you know, and I just wish that I, I do wish as like, even though as part of our story, it's like the part that didn't like a lot of people focus on other aspects of it. I think those are really important. I don't want them to get lost. Right. And, you know, I mean, to, to finish up on the tobacco thing, too, I, I think there's there's actually nuance in bringing it up, not, again, because Facebook causes cancer, but, again, because this was internal research that the company ended up sort of ignoring um, because it was inconvenient to their to their bottom line or to, to, yeah. to their, and, and, and again, I think that that's one of those things where it actually is a good metaphor in that sense, but it's not, it's not the commonly accepted uh, interpretation of it, which almost makes you think it's maybe not a great metaphor, but I do want to make sure that we get to one quick thing here because it's super relevant to Deepa. So what, what's your thoughts on Frances Haugen and, and her yeah. becoming of a media, uh, a figure because you guys had her anonymous or, or the research was given to you by an anonymous person and mm, yeah. she is the engine behind all of the reporting <laughs> behind it. And yeah. then on the last day, she sort of like steps forward and is going to be mm-hmm. testifying for Congress. And now, you know, is, is on the, I don't know the cover, but had, you know, a photo shoot for Vogue. And she's got a rival book with uh, the Wall Street Journal and the other competitors. I don't think those are like the same. That's not I like know. the same. I'm like, being annoyed. Right? I'm being annoyed. Yeah, because the, the the journal the journal won't explore her like beliefs in crypto, for example. Were you surprised that she decided to come forward in the way that she decided to come forward? And how do you think her becoming a figure impacted the the interpretation of the studies that she made? Yeah, public? yeah, yeah. I um was I surprised by the way she came forward. I mean, I I. It's what is the playbook for coming forward after you, you know, like, is there a parallel? Like, I guess I didn't, I didn't know what to expect. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't really know that like Chelsea Manning also what, what it would look like for, um, somebody who had, uh, what kind of copied all these different documents and, um, like how she would, yeah. Like I didn't, I didn't really know how she would come forward and, and think about, and present herself. So I didn't, it's hard to say whether or not anything surprised me because I like, I would just truly just had no expectations. I don't, I don't, you know, think I, on your second question, I'm just thinking like, how does it change the effect of the actual, you know, I've talked to, um, I've been talking to a lot of people, uh, like kind of activists who are on the left and people who are on <laughs> on the right and a lot of people who believe that Facebook needs to be broken up. And one thing that's been very interesting is like, at least when they're talking to me, what there's a distinction being drawn between her, the figure and the documents she took, right? Like there are, she doesn't think that Facebook needs to be broken up. Um, that's not, you know, she actually thinks that would be bad for society, et cetera, et cetera. She Which actually, actually makes thinks, her like a complicated figure for a lot of the yeah, maximalists. Exactly. And, you know, antitrust legislation is like one of those things that there's uh, bipart. There are plenty of by uh, of people on both the right and the left who think that Facebook should be broken up, should be reined in in all these different ways. And, and um, you know, she doesn't comport with those beliefs. And I think that there's a um, uh, <laughs> like, so I think that 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 is that makes it really complicated. But like the actual documents themselves, and that's what distinguishes her, I think, from basically everybody else's. There've been a lot of Facebook dissenters. She's come out with um, 
with her own opinions and a description of her experiences, which I think are, are really interesting, but the, but she's got documents that are like hard evidence of what company, internal company discussions are like around these issues. And I think plenty of people just separate that. They're like, you know what? She's, that's great. Thank you so much for the documents. Did she betray the Wall Street Journal? I think that Francis had always wanted these documents to go out there and to be um, kind of read and interpreted and understood by as many people as possible. I'm pretty grateful she gave it to us first and let us run with it for as long as we did. I mean, it's a fun conversation, but like, you know, uh, think deeply about some of these Facebook issues on just pure personality level, just like some fun Facebook. Like, I know, obviously, if you had the full picture, there would be a profile of this and maybe you have to hold back some, but like your general Mm -hmm. sense of the Mark and Cheryl relationship and then Mark Andreessen and Peter Thiel, to the extent you can, you have any observations about the role they play on the board, just like the, these fascinating people and what your sort of gut sense of how, how involved they are right now, what you're, what you would tell us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've done reporting on both of those topics and it does seem like, and the times has done some good reporting on it too. It's sort of, um, the Mark and Cheryl partnership was always like the co-CEO thing. And then it feels like after the 2016 election, there was just a loss of, maybe a loss of trust or something. There was a feeling of, oh, well, politics was supposed to be Cheryl's job, right? And she maybe dropped the ball, but is that a reasonable expectation? And picked the wrong team, maybe. (laughs) And was going to leave for the Hillary Clinton administration. (laughs) This this is like the dark universe for her. Like it's not supposed to happen this way. Or the darkest timeline. And obviously, I, I celebrate her for picking the wrong team. You know what I mean? But as a pure uh, sort of cynical sort of calculating move, it, it was a loser. And, but there is a real question to be asked. Like, why was that her job? Why was it all left up to her anyway? Right? Like, that that isn't really a realistic way of structuring a company. And so what I think you've seen is rather than like a co-CEO thing, she's just become one of the lieutenants. Um, one of the, the, one of the things that we got through, oh, sorry, uh, the documentation is, um, uh, like org charts, right? Like the ability to see. So one of, so we did this graphic, uh, when was it in October, um, that showed that over time, Cheryl's share of the company has actually shrunk, right? She's got, she used to have like a lot of people, I don't remember the, the numbers anymore, but like she used to have a big chunk of the company. And like over the last five years, it's gotten smaller. And like, what does that tell you about their partnership plan? Right. And so that, I think that, that, that era of the, of Mark and Cheryl is sort of over and it's, it's now just, it's Mark, right. There were moments during the Cambridge Analytica thing where Cheryl would tell her friends and we reported this. And I think other people reported this. She thought she was going to get fired because Mark was really angry about the way in which the company was being portrayed in in media and in press, or whatever. And um, I think that's that's always just like interesting to me because like there's a lot of things that Facebook apparently thinks are like a lot of Facebook executives think are like comms problems. And like, hey, if you would only just like explain this properly, then the press would get it, and then they would get off our back. But some of these issues are not comms problems. A lot of these issues are product issues, right? And like, there's nothing, I don't know what a comms person can really do to like, 
to, to solve for a product issue. And I think there's like that continuing tension continue that is there, but, you know, and I, I don't know. It just does feel like Cheryl has just faded a lot. Like she's really receded. She's in the back. She's not his co like partnership anymore. At some point during the last few years, she used to say something, started to say something, or at least people started to tell me she was saying things like, I serve at the pleasure of Mark. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sad. That's always a good, like, he's in charge. Yeah, I mean, that's basically what advisors say, which if that's her role now, is incredibly diminished from the lean-in days. Do Do you have a Peter Thiel, Mark? Andreessen take? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, they, um, Teal in particular, I don't have like the strongest read on, on Andreessen's role. It does feel like he's, I mean, just from the, the, the title of your podcast, you know, he's a Mark Zuckerberg booster, right? And that while they're, while they're deep in Web3, though, and, like Chris Dixon is on Twitter shitting on Web2 while Mark Andreessen is on the board of Facebook. They don't name Facebook, but to mm-hmm. me, there is a sort of, I mean, that's the magic of Andreessen that somehow, Though no, now we're seeing Jack Dorsey and people sort of fight back against it, but that they could simultaneously have been responsible or heavily involved yeah. in Web two while arguing that Web three is an indictment of Web two is mystifying. But isn't Facebook also trying to, to to graduate? Like, isn't aren't there right? Like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> it may not be that. I don't, right. it, it's that's the kind of thing that I think Mark Andreessen's been has also just kind of gotten away. Not you know he said a lot of things like do you remember the whole India thing yeah he, oh, yeah. yeah you know where he's like a, a something about well like like think you know how did independence work out for your economy India like at, when when Facebook's right. um, internet.org got cut like kicked off the kicked out of the country and and there he had to he like deleted his whole Twitter and then Mark Zuckerberg there was an apology and, Mark had to make an apology and I yeah. mean, we don't know core things like did Mark Andreessen support Donald Trump. Like I, I feel like we don't have there isn't a definitive answer. Like one I don't way. know that There's answer. A, he is avoided media to an extent that we don't have clear answers about huge, huge things about him. What anyway. about Teal though? What do you have on him? I think Teal's interesting. Yeah, but Teal we do have more read. Yeah, Teal is definitely interesting. Teal's one of these like there's always like rumors kind of circulating that Teal wants to leave the board, you know, that Teal is uh, like a disillusion, but he stays on the board and he is, um, and he is, uh, like, uh, as far as our reporting goes, he's been influential, right? I mean, he is, there was a point when, um, Mark had, uh, or Facebook had, um, uh, a couple of board members who wanted to create like an independent committee that would report to the board and like kind of think through all the different like risks and issues and whatever that Facebook was going to, that that, that might imperil Facebook. And, you know, the board said no, right? Because this wouldn't report to Mark. It would report to this independent committee. It would be outside of his control. And Teal, it, in our reporting and our understanding is a big reason why Mark has, has been a big encourager of Mark maintaining that kind of control and making sure that he's sort of um, at the center of everything, right? He doesn't, and I think there's, that's a very powerful, interesting, somewhat mystifying relationship. It'd be, I'd love to know more. So It's interesting too, because I've heard that, you know, Teal is going to be moving here to Washington and he does still have a lot of influence that he managed to, you know, grow during the Trump era here with a lot of people who will be making decisions about what to do around social media companies. And I wonder if that will change his relationship with Mark um, 
improve his relationship with Mark, make them closer if he continues to try to become a Washington player. That was Max Chavkin, who we've also had on this podcast. His argument was, um, yeah, that Peter Thiel is only going to become more politically influential, that this is the beginning. Um, I'm not sure I'm convinced of that yet, but it's a provocative uh, thesis. It is. And if you're a Mark Zuckerberg, why not just keep him close? Because that's that could be a very valuable relationship for you. And, you know, Peter also remember, Peter was there at the beginning. Like he knew Mark way back when, right? He's the first investor, one of the first investors in Facebook and big mm-hmm. believer and legitimizer of the of the company. And, I, you know, Mark is loyal. Like I, he uh, he appreciates and I think um, values loyalty. And I think that factors into their relationship as well. Again, these are sources who've described him to right. me. I have not talked to Mark directly about this relationship. So, hmm. and to, Oh, let's actually end on that note. So uh, when's the last time you talked to Mark? What's um, w- w- what was your sense of sense of the man and the way he views things? Uh, it's been a really long time. Um, you know, I think when he talks to, I didn't see you in the background of any of the Instagram videos. So yeah, you haven't so, been invited to go water air skiing with him. I'm sure it just got lost. What do I think of him? I mean, I think he's, I don't know. He's not like, I, I never, so I know that there's this, this reputation of him, like as a, as a, as like robotic and stuff, but I actually never, I don't know if I experienced that. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, m- much like Cheryl Tamar, uh, we serve at your pleasure as our friend. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for thank you for doing this yeah. and being uh, a loyal listener. Thank yes, you. I love listening. I actually really do love listening to this podcast. And I don't say that about a lot of podcasts. Which is interesting given the fact that we've had multiple guests and we ourselves have dissected so many of the articles that you have done. <laughs> and so I appreciate that you've continued to listen. Yeah. Well, now, now, now she gets the opportunity, you know, when you're like reading a story and you're like shouting into nothing about like your response to it. Now she gets to actually like, oh my God. I mean, there there definitely have been a couple of moments where like, there is like, you know, when someone was saying like, well, the the Instagram thing is based on only like a couple of studies that are small. I want it to be like, no, it was like five or six studies. One of them had tens of thousands of people, but whatever. So that's me shouting into the air now. Thank you so much, Deepa. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.